All right, I meant to say earlier, earlier, if you're a guest with us today, we appreciate very much you uh, attending. And uh, there is a Connect card, looks like that, in front of you in the chair. And if you would take a moment to fill that out and you can put it in the basket on the left going out or you could just give it to me. We'd love to have a, a record of your visit with us today so that we know how to pray for you and how to get to know you better and com uh, communicate with you as well. And uh, we also have a gift for you if you didn't get one on the way in. Uh, we'd certainly like to pass that along. And I also wanted to say, um, uh, continue to keep Ms. Deborah Swinmer in your prayers. We still have an active meal train to help care for her, and she definitely needs the ongoing support. So uh, the information was sent out to you about how to uh, help on the mill train. And so I'd encourage you, if you haven't already and can, to, you know, be a blessing to her because it's a, you know, it's just kind of a difficult time right now, and it would mean a lot for her to see you and to be helped. So, all right, well, today uh, as we look at this passage of Scripture, we have been going through Hebrews uh, verse by verse, and uh, this week I'm moving forward just a little bit uh, to get to verses 19 through 25, because I felt like um, what was in the preliminary part of this chapter is um, reinforcing some ideas we've seen previously. So as we think about where we are in Hebrews, the overarching idea is that there was a threat. Have you ever done a SWAT uh, exercise before? Sometimes you do those in workplaces, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats. It's like you try to assess and uh, uh, be conscious of what's out there. Uh, well, in the first century for them, a threat that they faced was people walking away from their faith. People saying, look, we're out. We don't want to be part of this community any longer. And there were reasons for that. And uh, this week as I read, one of the reminders that I had is when you read Hebrews, you find that it gets into a lot of details about the temple and the uh, Old Testament. And it shows us the progress that was happening through the new covenant, how Jesus came and Jesus fulfilled what the Old Testament had uh, predicted and uh, shown us. And so it, the shadows of those things, he became the substance of. And some of the people, it says in Acts chapter 6, this is what it says there. It says, And the word of God uh, spread, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Which is interesting when you read Hebrews because uh, one uh, commentator said maybe what we have going on here in part is that those priests were feeling the pressure to revert and to leave Christianity and to go back to what was comfortable and familiar. And the reason was because there was pressure culturally uh, through Rome. There was uh, persecution, not only through Rome, but also through the religious uh, background that they had themselves. We know the story of Saul of Tarsus, how Saul was arresting Christians. We know the testimony of the martyr, Stephen, the first martyr who testified about Christ and was stoned to death. And the Bible says Saul stood by holding the garments of those that stoned Stephen. And how Paul went to, Saul of Tarsus went to other places to have Christians incarcerated. And so this persecution was very real. Now it's alien to us because we live in a, uh, a country that is characterized by religious freedom and liberty. And we enjoy that and we hopefully cheer for 
uh, people to be able to worship according to their conscience. But that wasn't true there. It's not true in many places in the world. And so they felt that kind of pressure. I think the kind of pressure that we feel in a society like ours sometimes is more social. You know, we talked about it earlier in our Bible study hour that sometimes the pressure that we feel is that we feel misaligned with what most people in our country uh, think. And so consequently, we may feel like... uh, This is difficult, you know, to be a minority, to hold a set of beliefs that now feel out of fashion or out of style with the times that we're a part of. But certainly when you read Hebrews, what we see is that there was pressure that people were feeling. And the writer's intent is to say, say, stand, continue, walk with Christ. Don't give up the hope that has been revealed through him to you. And so when we look at this message today, uh, I think there are two uh, aspects of it that we want to focus in on. And it shows us some privileges that belong to us because of who Christ has become to us, but also some expectations. And so that's how we want to approach the message today. And so as we look at the uh, scripture, what we you know, we see is that that pressure may be real to us. If we don't come to a place, I think here's what the reality is for us that we learn through the passage, is that we don't, if we don't come to a place for ourselves personally where Christ is all-encompassing, where Jesus is everything, not just, you know, singing it, but that's the reality for us, that Christ is everything, that our faith will become one of two things, either lukewarm and uh, not meaningful, or something that we just put in the rearview mirror. And so that, that really is the clear call of Hebrews. is to For Jesus, to we said in the beginning, Jesus is better. Better than what? Better than anything. Better than everything. And so if he's not all to us, eventually something else will be. And so that's the challenge, I think, that's there. And so in this passage, we see a better way. And so... Oh, yeah, I'm supposed to be advancing the uh, thing because that's my job that I chose for myself now. Uh, Okay. Not advancing. So, Donnie, you may have to do this for me, and I've got a bunch of slides. So, can you go ahead and go forward? There we are. So, these are, yeah. So, we're way ahead for some reason, though. Yeah, go to um, 1A is where we'll start with um, what what the privileges are when we look at the scripture here. There's nothing there for some reason. So go where you have content, I guess, and my apologies. What do they say when Satan fell? He fell into audio stuff and technology, right? So the scripture shows us, and in fact, they preached without PowerPoint in the first century, I'm pretty sure. But, uh, so what are the privileges we experience in following Jesus? Well, if you follow in the passage, this is what you'll see, that there, there's confident access. We have access to Christ. And so when the Bible here talks about the holiest backing up, and I know that some of you weren't here, we talked about the tabernacle. The religious system in uh, the Old Covenant included a tabernacle, and in that it was a 15 by 45 foot structure, a tent basically, that was divided into two sections. The first part of it was called the holy place. There was a 15 by 15 foot room that was called the holy of holies. In the holy of holies was the ark of the covenant and the mercy seat where the 
high priest went annually to, okay, thank you. Yeah, we'll see if this works or helps. So far, I've still got blanks up there for some reason. Uh, there, There's the first thing. I'll tell you what, I'm just going to leave it off today because I think it's distracting more than helpful. Now I have your phone, though. All right, so in, in, there, in this system, there's this tent. In the 15 by 15 foot room called the Holy of Holies is the Ark of the Covenant. Over the Ark of the Covenant is the mercy seat. On the mercy seat, the high priest went once a year with a sacrifice, the blood of the sacrifice, and he would put it there. And it was a a representation of what would happen when Christ came. But for them, it it was a temporary kind of thing. So when the Bible talks about access into the holiest, it's talking about how Jesus came. And when he died on the cross in our place... He provided for us access into the very presence of God, into a relationship with God by his blood uh, uh, that was, you know, we think about Calvary and Golgotha. You know, the Bible talks about the place of the skull where Christ was taken after a mockery of a trial. And the only innocent human was put to death on behalf of those of us who aren't innocent, right, when we know ourselves. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And we've talked about how that progression looks. Sometimes we look at the world and we say, well, the world is clearly a broken place. Or we look at our family and we say, well, yeah, my family is characterized by dysfunction like other people's families. But when we get really close and we look in ourselves, we say, I'm not always pleased with my own decisions in my own life. I know that I've failed. And the Bible says, well, guess what? Welcome to humanity. All have failed. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so instead of leaving us in that situation, God came to us. Christ came to us. He, he took our place. And the Bible says that the, he, the just died for the unjust. The righteous person took the place of the unrighteous people so that God could embrace us and forgive us and cleanse us and his righteous judgment could be satisfied in Jesus. And so when it talks there about we have access to the holiest, that's what it means. That holy place that was figured, the place where forgiveness has to occur, Jesus Christ entered there by his shed blood to provide for us Forgiveness. So a privilege that we have is confident access. The scripture in Hebrews also says that we can come boldly to the throne of grace to find mercy and help in our time of need. Why, can, why is that true, that I can come with boldness to find God's help? It's because he made that way. He provided that forgiveness. He, he provided the cleansing that brings uh, uh, us into relationship with holy God. And we sing about his holiness and think about the, that's the song that the angels around the throne of God sing, holy, holy, holy. That's who God is. And yet that holy God made a way for us to be brought near. And so our confidence is based on that, the shed blood of Christ that takes away the sins of the world. And that's the other part that we see and we think about privileges is the, the purged sins. In verse 19 it says that our sins are cleansed by the blood of Christ. And 
the, the, there's an Old Testament passage where the writer Isaiah says, Come let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, though they're like scarlet, it says they shall be as white as snow. And the picture is that that's what Jesus did. He cleansed, you know, we can't deny that there's a record, an account of our history that we have of failure. And maybe, you know, we'll write some more in there tomorrow. The disappointment, the sin that characterizes our journey. And the Bible says that God said, let's reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be as white as snow. Jesus justifies and takes away the... He scrubs out the record of offenses that's against us, the Bible says. It's contrary to us. I love how Psalm 103 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. And we've talked about that idea, the east and the west. They go infinity apart from one another in that analogy. It's like he's saying there, your sin has been removed by Christ and it's completely taken away from you on the basis of his great love and sacrifice. We already read several times in Hebrews, a couple of times, the citation about the new covenant that says, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. That's the way, because of Christ, that God views us. He says, I look at you, I know your story, but your sins and your lawless deeds, I've chosen not to remember because of who Jesus is and what he did. So in Christian understanding, hope, when we talk about it, and it's uh, recurring in Hebrews, means confidence, a confident expectation, not based on what we deserve, but on God's goodness and his grace toward us. And the scripture in verse 20, you know, talks about, we're talking about now privileges that come to us because of the, uh, who Jesus is in, in our life. And part of that is a dynamic faith, a living faith that says in verse 20 uh, there, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil. And then it tells you what the veil is, his flesh. By his flesh, he consecrated a living way. I like that idea of living, it's life-giving. That's one thing it means. It's life-giving. How do we get real life? The Bible says through Jesus who said about himself, what, I am the life. That's how you get life. He's the living way. He consecrated a way, established a way through his flesh, by his gift of himself for us. It's living. I like the idea that it's inexhaustible. The Bible talks about God having poured out his mercy. And, and yet he pours it out and it's not extinguished or exhausted. There's more and more for God to pour out. His, this living way, it's inexhaustible. And, and so it's continuous, it, it, you know, is the idea when it talks about this living way. Life comes through him. It comes from him. And it won't ever fail anybody that comes to him. So the life that he offers, it, when it talks about it being living, those are kind of the ideas that it means. And a, a privilege that this passage talks about that you see in verse 20 is grace because we think about uh, the access to God. How, do we, how are things made right between us and God? Well, in verse 20, it talks about grace as well. It's a gift. That he, he, uh, it's through his flesh that he, he makes a pathway for us. It's free. 
And I think remembering what grace is, sometimes like the Bible study that the ladies are doing on Wednesday morning, the focus of it is preaching the gospel to yourself. Preaching the gospel to yourself. I heard that phrase from Paul David Tripp first, a Christian writer, author. But when I think about preaching the gospel to myself, what it means to me is that I have to remind myself what the gospel really means in my life. And what it really means is that God has made a a way for me that had nothing to do with my performance, thank goodness. Aren't you glad that God's access to him doesn't depend on how good or bad your day has gone? You know, it's different than that. It's about his character. It's about who he is, not about how, who we've been. If it depended on us, how uneven would we be? How up and down would we be? Every day we'd wonder, have I done enough? And, of course, the answer would always be no, I haven't done enough because I've, I'm a, a, a human and I have feet of clay, like they say. And so grace is what we need. It's the approach to God that we need. Many of us grew up with the sense that love had to be earned. Whether it was intended, whether that was the message the people around us meant to send to us or not. You know, sometimes it was inadvertent. And sometimes we heard differently maybe than what they meant. Or maybe they didn't grow up knowing how to tell us that we were loved. Maybe they just thought it was assumed, but we thought love had to be earned, whether that was what was meant or not. And somehow we missed out on the idea that God's love came to us right at the point of our limits and our weakness and our need. But that's how God did it. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, God demonstrated his love to us in, you know, in that while we were sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. I like that passage because it says for a righteous person, someone might dare to die. There might be somebody that would save someone else. But it says God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were sinners, while we were, you know, what we would say wretched, while we were alienated, God came to us. And he, he loved us and we don't earn it. It's not how it works. So we receive it. It's a gift that we receive. And we missed that, that there was someone who knew everything about us and still loved us enough to die for us. Isn't that good news? There's somebody that knows every single thing about you, and they already loved you enough to die for you. In fact, did die for you. That's the gospel. Every single one of us. And then in this passage, we, you know, we see the privilege of having that Savior. That no, no matter how despicable we might feel about ourselves at times, He knew all that, and he still loved us and still went to the cross on our behalf. I I like that the scripture in Hebrews and other places describes the fact that Jesus took a form when he came to earth. You know, God has uh, this history with us on this planet, and he chose the form of being a human. It tells us in Philippians chapter 2. That, uh, who being in the form of God did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself a servant, took on the form of a servant, made himself of no reputation. And he came in, he, uh, in the likeness of a man, and he died in uh, the place of every person. And it, but the, the idea that the form God chose when he came to earth was the form of someone who could suffer. 
And Jesus, what does it say about him in the Bible? He was a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief, suffered. He was was familiar with what it meant to suffer as a human. And that's how the form that God chose. He chose the form that when it talks about Jesus, it says he is not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses because he was tempted in every way that we are yet without sin. So the Savior that we follow chose a form that could suffer, chose a form, a a way of life where he could sympathize with what we go through. So we're not alone in our uh, suffering. The one who loves us most, knows us best, knows what it's like to go through life as a human, in a family, with all the challenges and issues that all of us face. And yet he did it perfectly so that he could become for us that perfect sacrifice. So that's the Savior that we have who heals us and helps us. And it also describes the privilege that we have in this passage in verse 21 is that we have an advocating ruler. An advocating ruler. In other words, the most powerful person in the world is on your side. Isn't that good to know? The most powerful person in the world, God, is on your side. And if God is for us, what does the Bible say? Who could be against us? But, of course, we know that there's a condition to this, and this is that we acknowledge who he is. That's how he becomes. He's advocating for us. He's already paid the price for us. We have to surrender to him as Lord, which, of course, is who he is. He is Lord. He is the ruler, and he advocates for us when, rather than being our adversary. The Bible says there is an adversary, but it's not Jesus. He's the advocate. He came to mediate, to bring us back to God. And, and again, that touches on you and your posture toward God. Am I willing to surrender? Am I willing to stop trying to be God? Am I willing to lay down my authority over my own life. That's the step we take in faith, the trust in Christ. And so, you know, those are the privileges that we see in this passage. And then it gets to some expectations, and I think they're interesting too, the nature of the expectations that are expressed in this passage, the conditions we see. And then some of these expectations double as privileges, which is uh, interesting. But second in the passage, the big division of it as I see it here, is those expectations. And the first one is this. It says, draw near. Look at uh, verse number 22. It says, let us draw near. Well, that sounds like both the expectation and a privilege. Right? It, it's, he's, it's a command. He wants us to draw near. But it's also a privilege to draw near. So it's a hybrid kind of thing. But this is the opposite of the impulse that sometimes we have as people to shy away from God. We sort of put God out of our mind. We uh, try to, if he's real to us, we keep it distant and far off. And this passage still sounds the notes of God's holiness when it it gives us the condition for drawing near in verse 22 with a true heart in full assurance of faith. 
having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This is just talking about Jesus and what Jesus does for people in relationship with him. As we draw near to him, we do so knowing that he's able to constantly cleanse us and he's able to constantly keep us. And so that's the confidence with which we draw near. But the passage is encouraging, challenging us to not keep God in our life at arm's length or uh, as a distant thought. He's bridged the gap and eliminated the distance between us and him. And when we choose to keep God at arm's length, we're making, uh, we're missing the effect of what Christ has done, which is to bring us near. He came near to, to bring us to God. And God isn't aloof. Sometimes that's the concept people have about God is that, yeah, maybe God exists, but he's not really concerned about me or this world. you know. But the Bible says he's shown you already that he's not aloof because he came to us. He, he is, when you think about what God is like, one of my favorite images is found in the Gospel of Luke chapter 15 where you get all these stories. Uh, uh, the first one is of a, a lost sheep. It's like uh, the shepherd leaves the 99 to go find the one. Then there's the story of a, a lost coin. The person loses her dowry, the woman in this story, and uh, calls all her friends until they find it, and they rejoice. And it's about what's lost and then what's recovered. And, of course, the what God is putting the value on isn't sheep or coins. It's people. And that's made clear in the story of the lost son, which is how Luke 15, you know, winds up is with this son who goes as far away from his father as he can. When he, uh, he reaches a point in his life where he tells his father, look, I'm sick of you, I'm sick of this place, and I want my inheritance, which was a, about a, as rude a behavior as you could, you know, expect from someone in, the, in their culture. It was... You know, everybody gasped as Jesus told the story. But the father gives the son his portion of his inheritance. And, of course, the Bible says he went and spent it on riotous living. Prodigal, that's the word. Wasteful. And he uh, eventually runs out of money. And it says he was hungry. So hungry that he would gladly have filled it. He was feeding pigs. He would have gladly filled his stomach on what the pigs ate. Nobody gave him anything. And he comes to himself. You remember the story? How he's like, has his aha moment. And he says, here's what I'll do. I'll go back to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Would you take me back as one of your hired servants? Father sees him afar off, which we get the idea that he had been looking and waiting. Sees him afar off. Runs out and grabs him and hugs him. Puts his ring back on his finger. He starts to give his speech and the father cuts him off. Puts the ring on his finger. Puts his robe on him. Throws a party for him. Kills a fatted calf. All those things we're familiar with. Do you want to know what God is like? That's what God is like. That's the purpose of the story is to say to us, that's what God is like. You know, we have this concept sometimes of God, no, this is what God is like. He's like that father who watches the horizon, who wants fellowship with us, who wants us to be near to him. Sometimes it's not a sense of unworthiness uh, with people that keep us 
far from God. It's our anger at God that keeps us distant. Whatever our hurt, and I know that, you know, life is full of hurt, directing our anger at God is misplaced because even though it's difficult to face, when we think again about God's earthly life, he was called a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. In other words, if anyone's familiar with what it's like to go through life and be hurt, he is. He knows full well what it's like to be rejected. He knows what it's like. What does the scripture say about Christ? He came to his own and his own received him not. You know what it feels like to be an outsider, to be rejected, to feel hurt? Well, so does God. That was God's experience on earth. And so what does he say to us in our situation? Draw near. He came near to us so that we could draw near to him, and he tells us the conditions. And again, it's about being a worshiper. Another expectation that we see in this passage, it says, hold fast. Again, that's, you know, if you're looking for a thesis in Hebrews, that's pretty much what it is. Hold fast. Don't let go. Don't walk away. Don't leave. Let us hold firmly to the confession of our hope unswervingly, it says in verse 23. Is the one who promised is faithful. So disappointment, doubt, frustration, bad days, bad weeks, betrayal, loss, misunderstanding in community, hurt, hang-ups, every bit of that stuff is just part of what it means to be a person. It happens to everyone at some point. Does it nullify God's faithfulness? No. God's still faithful. That's what the scripture says. Hold fast. You're going to have to persevere, uh, persevere through a lot of things. Hold fast. Because God's purposes are not frustrated. I remember... You know, when uh, my wife and I came to faith in Christ long ago in Augusta, Georgia, I think we both consider our hometown, even though we moved there where we were kids. Of course, now I've lived longer in Effingham than anywhere else, but, you know, we had roots there. The church that we came to faith in Christ was there. And the first disappointment I experienced as a follower of Christ was there. The first time I ever felt real hurt that was associated with Congregational life and following Christ was there. And a friend of mine wrote me a note at a point where I felt really hurt about something, and it just said, God is not thwarted. God is not thwarted. And, of course, I remember that now 30-plus years later. That, you know, we're going to go through uh, times of frustration and disappointment, but God is our advocate. God is the one that's saying to us, look, hold on. It's worth it. There, on the other side of some of the difficulty that you're facing is still me and my love for you. And, and our confidence in him is well-founded. The Bible says here also in verse 24 that we should consider each other. How that we might stir up love and good works. If we, This is an expectation. Okay, we saw the privileges This is the expectation. Consider one another. When you look at what the passage there says, it means to contemplate the people around you, to think deeply about the people around you. 
Consider each other how that you might stir up love and good works. Look closely and then look more closely. So here's what I think, you know, when I think about, again, what we're like as people. We have a natural bent toward cliquishness. That's how people are. Birds of a feather do what? Flock together. Why is that? Because they're familiar. They're comfortable. You know, it's uncomfortable to get outside of my clique, to go where people are that I don't know. But a healthy practice for us, if we want to be obedient to what the Bible says here, is to look out for people who aren't already in our tight circle, you know, to, to look people up and to get to know them better. When we had church dinners at the church that we used to be a part of, I made it my practice to try to go, uh, to go sit by people I didn't know or I didn't know well. And, and I think when the Bible is saying here to, you know, look out for the people, to, to connect with, the people around us, it, that's part of what it's, it's trying to encourage in us is some relational risk-taking. Risk Are you doing any relational risk-taking? Well, if, if you are, then I think you're in the heart of what this uh, passage is trying to say to us, that we're trying to care for each other and stir each other up toward the, the good things that God intends to be present in community. Probably all of us are experiencing the loss of empathy because of the unrelenting intrusiveness of digital devices. Somebody, uh, I don't know how you prove sociological things like this, but somebody said that the current generation is about 40% less empathetic than the one preceding it because we have our faces in our phones all the time. And it's just the fact that empathy is created face-to-face. That's how it's created. So, you know, what can I say? Put down your phone sometimes and, like, be with people. That's probably good advice. If we want to, you know, be in, the, in harmony with what this is trying to say to us about connection, about community. So tend to, uh, some of us tend to isolate. Why? Because you're an introvert and you don't really want anybody talking to you? Probably. I mean, some people are not me. I, you know, I'll go look people up to talk to them. But isolation is a real problem, too, in our culture. And I'm not saying stop being introverted because that's how God made you. I'm just saying when we look at this passage and what it means for us, it means like we try to figure out how do we meaningfully belong to each other in the way that God intended so, you know, we have to think about that in this community of believers, but in all our relationships also. Too often we don't know the names of people around us or their stories, even if we go to church with them week after week. And even in a church like this one that on a good Sunday is about 70 humans, we still don't know each other's names and stories. And I think part of what this passage is saying is like we can do better. We can try to know each other in meaningful ways and that we should. It's, you know, part of what God intends in community. We do our own thing. We go our own way. 
church is something we attend rather than a family we belong to. Community takes work. It is some work to know Bible doctrine, but the real work is is living it out with other people. You know, you do need the doctrine, but the real work is forgiveness. The real work is peacemaking. The real work is, you know, knowing each other and caring about each other and moving outside ourselves and... So, you know, when it tells us here to consider each other, that's part of what it's, you know, it has in mind. And then also, uh, privileges, expectation is frequently meeting together, verse 25, frequently meeting together. The Bible calls uh, us a, a body. Verse 25 says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the manner of some, but continue to come together. Uh, to encourage each other to love and good work, so much the more as you see the day approaching. So we're all familiar with this verse, right? That it tells us you should meet with other Christians frequently, that part of what it means, if like with our body, the analogy the Bible chose is a body. A body has what? Members in the biblical you know, way of thinking about it. So hands and feet and knees and... Then it, the unmentionable parts it talks about, you know, in the Bible. that it, But all are members of each other individually. And all the members serve some function. And so that, that's the analogy that God himself chose to describe the people of God. So being together with other believers frequently is part of what it means to be faithful in our obedience to Christ according to the scripture. So, church attendance today is often so sporadic that it's a detriment to effective local church ministry. So, I'm careful not to um, communicate in a way that uh, puts condemnation on people. You know, I try to be careful to think through the way that, you know, things like that are communicated when I'm communicating. And, you know, I know uh, more and more gladly the congregation uh, of people, you know, we've just been here like a year and a half. But more and more, I'm glad to know people better and better. And, you know, that's what, what I you know, hope continues to happen. And so, like, you, you, you know people's patterns and stuff like that. And sometimes I'm like, okay, I know today this person's not going to be here. And I know why, you know, too, sometimes. Like, they're off caring for their parents who went through a hurricane, you know. They're trying to help them get back on their feet again, you know. Then there's no, there's nothing in that that's inappropriate at all. I would hope, you know, that if I were that person's parents, they would also come, or I know that somebody's just homebound right now, you know, and that they are probably watching the live feed today and glad that they could do that and they care about their church and if they could be, they'd be here, you know. So when we think about this passage, we shouldn't take it in a tone of condemnation or we should just say, like, is connection to other believers a priority, an important thing to me? Well, it should be. It should be because that's where some of the stuff happens that you can't get any other way. And so when the Bible gives us this instruction, it's really just telling you who you are. 
You are a member already of other people. That God made it that way. Once you're born into the kingdom of God, you became a part of his family and part of his body. You did. So the other part of it is about, okay, what am I going to do with my will and my waking up person? Am I going to take it to places where I'm going to be a help? And a, am I going to take it to that place where I can uh, assist and make help make you know, some things happen for other people too and be aware of like opportunities to serve, to make friendships and help them grow deeper. And, you know, I I love a lot of what Rick Warren says about the church and uh, the body of Christ. And he says anybody can uh, be holy in, uh, you know, away from other people. It's easy to be, you know, okay. But, when you know, it's in that, in, in that community that faith really is formed and tested and proven. And so when the Bible gives us that idea of an expectation, it's something we ought to take to heart with the understanding that it me- it's meaningful to us. Ephesians uh, 4.16, I like how it puts it in the New Living Translation. It says, He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow. So that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. That's the body of Christ it's describing. The last part of this uh, section talks about the, um, the return of Christ. It ends in a kind of a subtle way by saying, keep doing this. What? Meeting together, being together, gathering. So much the more as you see the day approaching. What day is that? Well, it's the day of the return of Christ. That's what's implied. The day is the day of Christ's return. So another expectation is that we live with eagerness as we anticipate the day of Christ. How do you feel about the fact that God himself is going to interrupt human history? In person, according to the Bible, that he's going to separate the clouds and that he's going to put the period at the end of history. Well, the Bible says our attitude toward that ought to be eager anticipation. I am looking forward to a world in which there is no darkness. I'm looking forward to a world in which there is no temptation to to sin. I'm looking forward to a world in which God himself is reigning and ruling. Forever, And the Bible says that's the attitude that ought to characterize the people of God. The caveat for me is this, that I want as many people as possible to be under the reign of Christ when he returns. The people I love, the people that you, you would care about, everybody. Otherwise, we say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. That was what they said in the first century. Come. They lived with that eagerness of his return. Because we have confidence in God's love for us, proven in Jesus, we're energized to live for him. I think that's the idea in this text. We're in touch with what really matters in life. At least that's what God intends. And since that's true, we have different priorities, and it shows up in our commitments. And we don't go AWOL on our brothers and sisters. We are together with them, and we serve them. And we let them serve us when it's needed, which is often. We pull together with them towards something uniquely bigger and greater than any of our individual wishes. That's mission. 
God gave us a mission in the world. It includes everybody, not just some people, everybody is included in God's mission. One thing that's neat, I heard someone talking about this just yesterday, is like the love that you experience in community with other people. He says, don't you want other people to have that same love? Don't you want them to have that experience? That's mission. It's the idea that we take the experience of peace and the experience of hope and forgiveness that we have, and we try to share it with the people around us. We try to help them come to know what we've experienced and that is the most important thing for us. And we do it together. We're pulling together. We learn how to live in community. We do the hard work and live out the commitment to know Jesus and help others know him too. We experience comfort because of grace. Grace is the gift of God that reminds us that he loved us enough to give himself for us. And we remind ourselves frequently that we can rest in him and serve him confidently, that he already loved you to the greatest extent that anyone will love you. Having received this great gift of grace, our love for Christ is authentic and encompassing. We don't live in compartments. We don't put this part of our life over here and this part over here. We let God into all of it, and he informs all of it. His life is essential in every way, and it's evident in us and among us, or at least that's how it should be. And now is a good time for us to set aside excuses and live our, our lives for Jesus. I, I was thinking about a song I heard years ago. I don't know if anybody would remember Helen Baylor, maybe not. It was back when uh, contemporary Christian music, but Helen Baylor had this song that was uh, called Sold Out, Sold Out for Jesus. And one of the lyrics was from Nehemiah where he says, I'm not coming off the wall. I've got too much work to do. I like that. Sold out. What would be wrong with that idea in our lives today? To say, there's nothing more important in my life than to sell out to Jesus. In the end, I think it will be the attitude that we all wish we had. So we're going to have a time of commitment now. And I would love to pray with you if it's uh, helpful to you. Not to embarrass you, but if you need prayer today, you know, I'd be happy to do that. If you, if you need to make a commitment, you know, uh, we talked about recently that the Bible idea is that commitment to Christ is public. There are no... People who are follow him, you know, secretly, he called people to follow him publicly. And so, you know, we invite you to do that. We will gladly fill up that pool over there to my right with water and put you underwater, not very long, just a moment, and pull you back up as a reflection of your new life in Christ. It's one of the most important reasons we exist is so that people can know Christ and Begin that journey with him. And so that's part of what this time is for, is an opportunity for public commitment if you need to do so. And uh, would you stand with me, and I'm going to pray for us, and then if there's a need that you have to respond today, uh, trust that you'll follow God's leadership in that. Father, thank you so much for the incredible uh, love and compassion that you revealed to us in the cross of Christ. Thank you that you have promised us your presence, that you'll never leave us or forsake us. Thank you that we have life when we choose you 
and we pray, Father, that you will just help us as we worship now and as we have this time of commitment to obey you, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.